from the top. A five, six, seven. saying it right at the end i do want to know what is your personal experience with the show so you've kind of dropped it you've pretty much grown up around it and yeah. like had this experience from a very very young age yeah. what expound on that i think it was 1995 when my dad did it i have seen so many different ver- like i've seen my dad and all of my like theater family yeah i've got these people in like a cast list of you know everybody has like the movie none of those were the original cast to me the original cast was my dad is seymour colleen owen who's my at the time, my best friend Haley, his mom played Audrey. Like, mm-hmm. I know all of these faces very intimately who they were on that stage. Sure. They did it in 95. What I remember is The Plant, which my friend Frank Simpson, who is a, a now he like goes to puppet conventions. Like, I wish I brought production photos to show you because they did it right. And like, it's still, it holds up to Broadway standards. They did it so well. So I see this plant, like it was real to me. It just was quiet when we, they weren't doing the shows. Like a four-year-old to me, I'm like, that plant is real and it eats people. Aww. And I like, I remember <laughs> like going around it, like not being afraid of it because I knew it wouldn't eat me. Right. Frank was in it at times. I knew, like I knew mechanically that he moved it up and down, but like it still was real. Yeah. And then they did the, sh- they, it was so successful in Livingston that they did it again. I think in 1998. I can't remember the dates, but they did it basically three years apart. Oh, wow. Lots of the cast came back, did it again. One of my like theater uncles, his name's Mikey Brannon, and he played the dentist. They also did it, which I think is the classic casting, but th- what they did is whoever plays the dentist played a bunch of other roles. Yep. Like, oh, yeah. They also did it with the strange and interesting plant in the window guy sure. was also him. <laughs> so... <laughs> So when that's awesome. My favorite story of this is, you know, this is I might be getting them in trouble, but who cares? But the firehouse is defunct now. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So it doesn't matter. They would kind of around with it. (gasps) And I remember this story. So one of the nights, usually it's just he comes in as a businessman. He goes, I couldn't help but notice the strange interest. This one night they get a wig. It's my dad's. It's close to my dad's birthday when they're doing this. And my dad loves the Beatles. Michael gets a mop top wig comes in and he goes excuse me i couldn't help but noticing a strange and interesting plant in the window that's <laughs> so iconic I and, love then, it. and so my dad is just like trying not to break on stage and he's like doing the whole thing but he does it as paul mccartney oh and so God. and at the end he's like okay thank you mr mccartney like okay goodbye <laughs> like i it was anyway so Every time I see it now, oh, and, and to me, like, that was such a quintessential, like, I thought that's how the show was supposed to go. So when I saw the movie, it finally, I was like, why is that not Paul McCartney? Like, <laughs> isn't that supposed to be Paul McCartney? Oh, my God. Anyway, no. that was like my, you know, six-year-old brain going like, that should be different. Anyway. That should be Paul McCartney. So I saw I saw it, and I was, a, I like, to me, this has always been what the p- pinnacle of musical theater should be, is this show. Ooh. Because it was, like, always that. I had seen, like, they had, they did every show there. I saw Cabaret when I was young. I, those ended up being quintessential to my musical upbringing, but I didn't, at four years old, you don't understand Cabaret or why it's significant. Right. At right. four years old, you get 
a mutant killer plant on stage eating people. And you, you get the significance yeah. of that scale. I remember moral con- quandaries at four years old with my friend getting fed to this plant and watching my dad do it to his one of his best friends, watching this other guy playing Mr. Mushnick, who, I, you know, his daughter was my babysitter, mm-hmm. watching him get eaten every night by this plant. You're All of a sudden, it's like intensely real for a four-year-old. Oh, and you're going yeah. like, oh, what is... It's why I think I'm this so... suddenly com- explains so much about you, Errol. I know. <laughs> like, there's a more... Like, this is... It is entirely warped my perception of mortality of all of these things when you watch somebody die every night five nights in a row you know and the greek chorus idea the commentary all of that read to me as a four-year-old and then again when i was whatever a seven or eight-year-old you see it again and you go oh I, i there's even more of this like every level of comprehension that i kept getting and then i'd see it again i saw it here at grand street when i was probably 10 or 11 then Mm -hmm. seeing it with not those people but same story it's that when i saw it at grand street was the first time i realized the dentist was a villain Mm -hmm. because it didn't i didn't really get that concept because it was my it was my dad's friend who was funny and he was this funny dentist guy and then all of a sudden the right and the wrong and the moral. so every time i've seen it it's opened up another window of morality and ethical questions and like the actual context of why this show is good by the time we were seeing it and doing it in Missoula, it had reached this level of like, oh, there's a lot that you could unpack from this. And then when people, I've been in so many production rooms of people wanting to do the show or like at a bar when people are like, oh, I love that show. I'm going, yeah, but why would you do this show? And they're like, well, it's really cool. There's a really cool plant. The plant would be so cool. I'm like, "Mm, that's not we're not even there. It's not even you worth can't doing. Sit with us. <laughs> Go you away. Can't sit with Go us. away. You're not ready to do this show because <laughs> there's so much more you could do with it. Oh my god. Uh, Seymour, I don't think you understand. Don't be fooled if I should giggle like a sappy, happy dope. It's just the gas. <laughs> it's got me high. But don't let that back. There's really clever inversions in the score of like, uh, what was I just saying? In Skid Row, uh, um, Skid Row is an inversion of the Meek Shall Inherit. Like they are reverse chord progressions. They're reverse. What? Yeah, they're like different keys, but they're also like, if you listen to the melodic structure of those songs, they're going backwards. Skid Row is like it's hot and like you know the meek shall inherit they're like literally parallel parallel structures that is absolutely unreal because it is supposed to be a cyclical tragedy they knew that at some degree even though there's it's a very pragmatic very quintessential like musical theater composition as far as book and music it's that a little attention to detail and just that little attention to care that makes it so replayable. And I think that speaks to also what you were saying about being four years old and how simple this plot is. Oh, yeah. And being able to read it and how you're saying it's cyclical and it's just easy. I think that all speaks to the structure and build of the show and the people that saw 
the things in it that can resonate to this day. And I think that's probably why it's stood the test of time in many, many ways. I think people now like composers and, and musical theater makers nowadays are so afraid of this kind of a structure. They want it to be multi-layered and extra dimensional. Yeah. And, and it gets not even, I won't even get to the derogatory of convoluted, but it gets cumbersome on like, you don't have, I think Gershwin knew it. Rogers and Hammerstein knew it. Kander and Ebb, absolutely knew it that simple sells and simple kiss rule keep it simple stupid yeah and and that doesn't make it bad in fact i think it makes it the art form that it is is they can focus in on something and really spend time focusing on that one thing absolutely and i think that that is so engaging and the modern audience i think they excuse complexity for genius or they they interchange those and i don't think it's necessarily true Genius is being able to present an idea that has holes in it, you know, like when you can see through the thing, but it makes sense and it's polished on the inside and you can see it might just be a simple little glass structure, but man, it's pretty. I I look at it this way and all of a sudden this makes the world of difference to how I perceive this show. I don't think the writer's intent is everything that a show needs to be either. I think a good writer leaves space for interpretation, you know? Totally. And this is a great show for that example. I think you could easily do this show and never read into it more than the lines on the page. And it's still insanely watchable. But if you choose, like I have, to like warp it, I've watched it as a musical theater fan, as a horror fan, as a composer, as a director. And every time I go, oh, you could do it that way. And it has really interesting implications to the text. But... It doesn't have to be any which way for it to work. Oh my God, this conversation is just making my heart so happy. Well, then how about you, Mary? Me? Oh my gosh. Um, This show has been, you know, like I kind of briefly mentioned in the beginning i've never seen the show in person like i didn't get a chance to to see it when it was uh, here in town but um i have been in love with the film for years and i've sang you know multiple iterations of the songs for years and this is definitely on my bucket list of things to see in person because now having um you know, of course, being the type of person that was like, oh, well, I know Little Shop, but I only, I only know Little Shop in a film sense, knowing that we were going to, you know, talk about the show. And I mean, obviously, you know, Aaron and I have been friends for a decade and we've talked about the show on multiple iterations, knowing that there are differences between the Broadway version and the film was so fascinating because like now I have this great kind of comparison to go, I see now why things, you know, are a certain way. Because like I always was the type of person that was like, oh, my God, I love the ending because they both made it out like it was great and it's everything was fine. And, you know, the plant takes over the world, but okay, fine. But like, then, you know, listening to you guys talk about this and thinking about it through that lens, it's like, you see, he gets everything he wants. And, but the end of it is he's got to die. Like he has to do it. There's literally no other, there's no other way to do it, but it's, it's just such a, I'm so excited to see this in person. Cause I would love, absolutely love, love, love to see it in real life. So I'm very surface level. I am familiar with the show. So this is not one that Steven introduced me to weirdly enough. Um, but like most of our shows are Steve, I'm like, Oh, Steven introduced me to this musical. Um, so yeah, very surface level, love the music, love the film. Uh, have never seen it in person. I really want to. Son, Skidrow's favorite florists. 
7,000 boutonnieres, carnations, or the yellow roses? Please have only got two ears. Allergic to chrysanthemums? Hollyhocks are hardier. Which ones would your wife prefer? Were you waiting long? I'm sorry, sir. One minute, and I'll get her for you. See more that reporter? Her? I thought we finished yesterday. She wants another interview. Said to bring the plant with you. Audrey, it's that new account. Sorry, that's the right amount. Daisy's only coming white. Sir, I'm too right now to fight. Sorry, those are out of stock. See more, look. It's six o'clock. Call back in the morning, will you? Call back in the morning, won't you? I have, I've seen this a couple, a couple iterations, never professionally done, which is on my bucket list. Hey. But, um, I, cause I was trying to think about where, what's my first like memory of this. And I have no idea. The closest I can get is because knowing, uh, Rick Moranis, I was obsessed with Honey, I Shrunk the Kids when I was little. Oh, sure. And I have to assume he was my gateway. He was the thing that got me. <laughs> he was your gateway actor. <laughs> yeah, the gateway actor. He probably made me look at this. What cosmic coincidence that Rick Moranis, who is the perfect Seymour, would exist in a time when this musical does. Like, <laughs> right? There's no reason that that should have lined up, but Rick Moranis is Seymour. <laughs> He is totally. He is so the absolute like if you asked an AI to just like draw Seymour, they would draw Rick, Rick Moranis. Moranis. That's it. So when we do quick cast, then if I cast anyone other than Rick Moranis, I'm gonna hear Errol yell about it. Like he's like you it will audibly. Everybody else can attempt, but he'll bust in here and be like, "You're wrong." Actually, this is a perfect segue. My first actual talking point. I want to get into this, and I want your take on this, Mary. And I we sort of said this too, but I'll open it up, of course. But you as a female, me as a female, I. Ellen Green is my Audrey. She just is. She was sure. in the original Broadway cast, and they brought her in for this eighty-two film. Errol's very happy about this. He's he's agreeing with you wholeheartedly. There's it's it's one of those iconic things. You will never reinterpret her. Like you you can caricature Ellen Green playing Audrey. <laughs> you can do whatever, but it, she will be her own pinnacle, cemented, done set. Done, put that uniform up in the glass shadow box. It's retired. The sure. number's retired. Sure. So only people can interpret Audrey now in this shadow of Ellen Green. Sure. Like we have to give due where credit's due. So in more contemporary versions, we are seeing this uprise of Audrey's play it more sincere. We're seeing an Audrey with her own convictions and wants and needs. Sure. And she she is more along the lines of, I just don't see how it's going to get better, as opposed to, I don't have a lot of self-worth. This is as good as I can get, so I'm just going to live with it. Sure. Which is more of the Ellen Green route. I'm wondering what speaks to you more, because this is also set in this iconic sort of 60s era. Sure. Right? I think it's the idea of uh, females in particular having low self-worth, low self-esteem. Um, this is as good as it gets. I shouldn't ask for more because I don't deserve more, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you name whatever it is, I think is a, unfortunately a, a timeless kind of mindset. And it doesn't really matter what era you put yourself in. Women will find themselves in periods of their life where they feel that. And especially with Audrey, because she's in an abusive relationship that is a could be considered a hallmark of an abusive relationship because you have a woman who is like, this guy is kind of taking care of me and you know, I don't want to make him mad, but I, I mean, I am scared because I don't know what else I can do. I don't know if there's anything else I can do and I don't have the strength to be able to do that. So I'm just going to settle for what I have. It is timeless in that regard, 
But growing up with Ellen Green and knowing that like that is who I think of when I think of Audrey, you know, whenever I think of this musical, I think it's a really kind of beautiful refresh to give it another lens, I guess, to see this through. Because, I mean, we talk about on the show a lot wanting to give something a different viewpoint and gaining perspective. And and I really appreciate giving her kind of a more realistic approach of like less about the it's not my self-worth and more about I have to make do with what I have because this is what I have right now. And we're focusing more on the idea of like, this is what I have and not, could it be better if I did whatever? I really appreciate it. And, you know, not to dog on the, you know, the, the classic of Ellen Green, because I mean, she's incredible. And she, I mean, yeah, it's refreshing. I like it is the long yeah. way of saying that. <laughs> no, and I totally agree. I will always just say there, the one line that then doesn't stick is just with the is what it is mentality. Right. Is because one of the street urchins right before she sings um, somewhere that's green speaks and says, oh, she just suffers from a low self-worth. So I think it's up then to the street urchin to interpret that correctly or Audrey then herself has to take that and run with it yeah. and make it work for stage when you play it that way. So, I mean, it's just hard because it's in the script. You don't take it out. It just no. is. It is what it is. So, well, but how about you, Earl? What's the, what's your take on it? Yeah, to cut in a little bit on that. I Unfortunately, I, I do think it's one of the flaws of the of the show is I think she is written from a perspective of victimization. Like she's a victim. Oh, totally. Yeah. Like you're saying, a product of the times bad and bad writing. But I think there is a very distinct difference between and the, both of them are tragic. Let me preface that, too. One of them is my self-worth is low and the other is more than it is what it is. I think when you take context of Skid Row into account in a very sadistic, sad, morbid way, she is saying, this is what I deserve. Sure. All of her examples, like if you can imagine her growing up, this is who she has been told through her circumstances you should be and who you should be with is what you need to find an or like this is the best you're going to find. Mm -hmm. And that's why suddenly Seymour gets to be the happy song that it is because it's the first person in her entire life who goes, why do you think that? <laughs> like who <laughs> gave who you this you? contact? <laughs> like this isn't who you have to be, mm -hmm. but everything up until that point, like the fact that mundanity is her fantasy is so telling mm -hmm. of who that character is. She's because she is resigned to saying, yeah, this is who women in my scenario, we get beat. Mm -hmm. We we find that guy. And Daddy left early. Yeah. Mama yep. was poor. Yeah. Yep. Well, and I guess I'm, I'm not taking into context, too, the later conversation she does have with Seymour right before suddenly Seymour. She does talk about this is all I'm worth. This is all it is. I met uh, Orin in the gutter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All of the joke, the place is not the gutter gutter. It's the club, it's the club yeah. yeah so she feels oh this is where this is where we go out this is where we live i'm never getting out but i think you can insert any stereotype here the projects the south side the wrong side of the tracks the downtown whatever yeah. you know the small town you grew up in even yeah. it's it's about i'm never gonna get out of here which is spoken yeah in skid row totally it, and it's not even like the bar is low it's like what bar that people what, don't get out of here. there's no bar like the only bar is the one on the corner like we don't have one of those <laughs> like the people who are here are who you date and who you quote unquote love mm -hmm. you know you don't have to talk about my small montana town right in front of me uh, hey 
We're on. There's a Montana out. town in a hole. <laughs> I <laughs> ran. I ran. You, you know what? Good for you, buddy. switch to our villain of the show. I have an entire theory about this whole thing. The dentist. What are your thoughts on the dentist? My experience being the film and that's what I've grown up with. Obviously, they expanded a little bit more on the role of the dentist because of Rick or not Rick Moranis because of Steve Martin, right? They the right. the star power of Steve Martin was one that they were like, "Okay, if we're going to pay Steve Martin to be in this, you know, movie, here's the thing." Oh. That 1960s original source yeah. had a lot more dentists. Oh, I'm sure. And when they wrote it into the stage, the dentist is a lot less. Oh, but then, sure. This 19, the film took the old film and like recreated scenes right. and brought characters back. Sure. So yeah, like Bill Murray's the, character isn't in the isn't in the stage show. Is oh, not no. in the stage production. Yeah. But then we have to talk about the dentist and what he's doing to Audrey. Like, there's this whole control thing. Right. This whole sadistic. I almost said fascist, and that's actually right. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, I will say that from, like, I've always loved The Dentist just because of, I think I loved him because it was Steve Martin. And it was like, uh, the... You have to cast someone that you're kind of in love with, like is lovable enough, you love to hate. You can, hate he has to have love. the charisma. Like, he's got to have enough charisma to be able to draw you in, right? And on the surface, it's like... Ooh, like I, I, but as a woman, I'm, I'm going to be stereotypical for one hot second. Women like the bad boy. We like the idea of somebody on a, on a motorcycle with a leather jacket, who's got the Elvis like quaff going on. And he is, he is a dentist and somebody that like, he gets close to you and has to be close to you for his job. So of course, like you're going to already have that boundary with him or that lack of boundary if you're a patient because he's right in your face. Right. So I always love it adds a layer too that. It's someone you trust, someone oh, that is going to help you. Absolutely. 1000%. And it's, that's why I fell in love with him so quickly because like he is charismatic and he's talented and he's like, well, you know, stops a bike just by pointing at it. Like, you know, he's got all of these, these things. He shows his true colors by screaming at Audrey. I mean, we know that she shows up with black eyes and her arm in a sling, but it's not until we meet Oren Scrivello, DDS, that we, we then go, okay, we, me. Is th- did he really give her a black eye? Did he really put her arm in a sling? Look at him. He's so pretty. And he's, would he really do that? And then he starts yelling at her. People get away with murder in this that's world. That's you know? how they do it. It's Patrick Bateman. No one yeah. suspected. Wink I got, and a smile. I got drawn in very immediately. Uh, literally of every other character in the show, he is the only one having a good time. He's the only one who's happy. He's the only one who's like doing what he wants. 
He's the, uh, I mean, like literally every moment, even when he is pissed off at like in the moment, the, the Jesus Christ, you crash with a freaking scattered brain mm-hmm. and he slaps her. The next lines, he is smiling. Mm-hmm. He is happy and he's talking to Seymour. He is, he is living his life in the symbol of this. He is the success of the American dream. Mm-hmm. He is the yeah. success of, he is a doctor with the degree, with the nice stuff, with the nice bike. He's with the know, pretty girl, with like the pretty girl, and mm-hmm. then like there's the, you know, the leather daddy side of it too that exists. That of like, it, which when this was written has an even different, like an interesting connotation <laughs> oh, yeah. to it. Like, but the embodiment of success mm-hmm. and why a character like Audrey would be attached to him is interesting. Mm-hmm. This is I'm going to completely derail us. This isn't a side plot per se but i want to push the button so bad but what i'm gonna say is this is not canon this is maybe projection but it absolutely has a point overall in all of this canon and not projection (laughs) in the 1960 film there's this whole scene where we get jack nicholson coming in but seymour has already killed the dentist so jack nicholson is having to be operated on by seymour Oh my god. I don't remember that. What? Yeah. So in this 82 film, they made the right correction here, to my mind, by having Steve Martin operate on Bill Murray, who walks in. This person that Jack Nicholson slash Bill Murray is playing wants dental work. They want to be like that they're a the, what do you call it? Masochist. Sadist themselves. They masochist. masochist. They want that pain. They want that feeling. Don't give me the numbing agents that dulls the senses. <laughs> is the line. <laughs> and so, w- what this does to the dentist is it takes it all away. His joy is gone because Bill Murray is enjoying the pain being inflicted and the power then that the dentist has over anyone. Now, on top of this layer, you have to add this scene. If you watch this film is so almost sexual, it's gay sex. Oh yeah. Bill Murray (laughs) is getting off from another man and, and Steve Martin is not having this. The dentist is not having this continuing to do what he does but bill murray's like yes give it what mm, yes oh yes more and so he's had it he's like no he's taken away all of his power and emasculated him to a point where he sends him out the door and then the next person in line is Seymour. Mm-hmm. The questions asked, are you scared? Are you going to be in pain? Are you going to shudder at like, he's like, yes, yes, I am. And so we have this whole thing where the only thing that has taken this dentist out is this idea of being emasculated and taking away that power. Ergo, the one thing, the kryptonite of a dentist, and we can put this into context with Audrey. Sure. He Sticks her with his thing every night. <laughs> it's, it's just like, I think it's all a metaphor. It's all got to be a metaphor. A metaphor. To be like, oh, 
can I stick this in you and have power over you is really the metaphor. It's taken away. So we can put that on Audrey and then like, oh yeah. But then we're also, Bill Murray's kind of like a hero in this way and he's the kryptonite. So it's, it's just like, oh, we figure, we see that. We see who, we see who the dentist is in this sadistic way because he wants to inflict that pain. But we get to see the other side of like that masochist. Steven, I'm crying. It'd be... (laughs) In the original Jack Nicholson version, it's not even like a character that needs to be there. Like, it's just this weird interaction. It adds to the weirdness, Twilight Zone feeling of this film, of the horror of it all. Like, someone loves dental work? What's this? But I think it was ballsy to (laughs) make it in this 1982 film literally kind of be like low-key gay softcore porn. Yeah. Watch that scene. Literally go watch that scene and tell me different. I think it's in it's like entirely inherent in that scene. Which is like what's funny about the so if you take like what I call like the Wizard of Oz effects, like what what I mean by like you know how when people talk about there's like the second layer of Wizard of Oz, which mm-hmm. is all about like capitalism also. Sure. So like oh, totally. when you take the Wizard of Oz effect to this and like who Bill Murray is in the context. Cause I think Frank Oz was very deliberate when he made the 1980. The, the, oh, it was all, it was all about, we just this is, talked about this actually. Yeah. Oh, you did. We sure did. Did I miss it? Was I peeing? I don't think it was on a podcast. Oh, okay. Great. <laughs> right. I'm like, Oh no, I missed one of my favorite parts. No, 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 no. no. It was just it's the effect. Funny, it was on another show. <laughs> but we uh, I always call uh, the Wizard of Oz like the first Hunger Games oh, oh sure yeah oh my god yeah that's a great it's, it's literally yeah but literally though but so when you look at Bill Murray as like he is the average consumer he's he is signed up for it and he says I'm I'm bought in this is what I want he is the ideal consumer but we hate him <laughs> like yeah and, and the guy delivering the power despises that guy and wants nothing more than to get him out of it. Like he already, cause he's already bought in. He's like, my fun is done with this guy. I can't do anything with him. Yep. He's already drank the Kool-Aid. He's almost his own uh, cautionary tale. And like, that's what happens when too much is consumed or you yeah. completely buy in. You are brainwashed. You are, you have to get that new Apple iPhone the second it comes out of that store. Otherwise you're going to be behind. He's got your number now. I saw it last week and didn't think twice. He knows just what you've done. And the little red dot seemed innocent enough. You got no place to hide. But now I catch you kissing the dentist girlfriend. You got nowhere to run. And it begins to look like a motive. He knows your life of crime. Once he's out of the way you move in, right? I think it's supper time. I'm innocent. I, I got a sidetrack for, or what do you call it? Side plot. Side plot. I have one of those. Side plot. Ah, I got to push the button at least one time. Okay. So I find the correlation, the Frank Oz of all of this very interesting too, because this gets me back to the unsung hero of this is the plant and the puppet mm-hmm. of the plant, which is, uh, I had to look up the name because I forgot, but Martin Robinson was the original creator of who built the first plant in all of its yeah. iteration. Martin Robinson was part of the Jim Henson crew. So worked. Like, that was my clue for the show for this week. He, uh, that's right. Steven mentioned that it was Jim, Ooh. Jim Henson. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. 
like uh is it Snuffleupagus? like Martin Robinson played Snuffleupagus on in the Muppets who also in turn Frank Oz was part of the Jim Henson world. Mm-hmm. And so like that is the in on like and, and I don't know all of the details on that except to know that like when you look at the Muppets and Jim Henson and how they treat storytelling, mm-hmm. they always have this meaty understanding of like their connotation of that. And mm-hmm. so I just find it really interesting to know that A Audrey 2 is a Muppet. Tech- like I I don't know technically, <laughs> but like does that also make her factory? a Disney princess? <laughs> uh, maybe now. I don't know. So when you look at the movie, it's always had this kinetic through line of, you know, with Martin Robinson and all and like this thing, how Muppets treat their stories. Like it's a morality play. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a message behind all of it. And so totally. the fact that Frank Oz, who comes from this background, takes that and like you look at the things that he's done past like Stepford Wives mm-hmm. like his, that remake all of these other movies they are dystopian none of them say like this is what could happen this is like this is who we are mm-hmm. like this is what lives in all of us rent free and we just need to accept it and I think that that's such a in the fabric of the plant has always existed this kind of messaging so oh yeah. Okay, that's really wicked, and that's an excellent tie-in that Errol didn't even know. He didn't know that you gave me that clue. I didn't. Love it. That's literally incredible. How dare you? They say the meek shall inherit. Where do I start? You know the book doesn't lie. Right on the line. It's not a question of marriage. That leads fine. It's not a man as a man. This copy's mine. You make a fortune, we swear Couldn't it. Couldn't go wrong. If on this fact you rely. I've had so long. You know the meek are gonna get what's coming to them. You know the meek are gonna get what's coming to them. You know the meek are gonna get what's coming to them. into my next point. The people who do lots of stuff with this show Mm -hmm. love to pay homage to its past iterations. Oh, I'm sure. And, you know, keep everything there. And a lot of that is within that genre of this point and era in time. Like, uh, in the original 1960s film, Mm -hmm. there's a uh, Shiva they call it the Shiva account, right? Mm-hmm. And sure. that's where the local funeral home that always buys all the flowers from yeah. Mushkins. She's actually a featured person in this 1960 film. Mm-hmm. In the 82 film, there's no Shiva, but Seymour gets yelled at for, hey, did you get that order for the Shiva account? Right. Yep. So like right. it's still called out. Yep. So yeah. it's always paying tribute. It's these little Easter eggs that if you do know the history, you're going to know it. And you're going to love how it is. It's like in that original 1960s show, all the people that get eaten by the monster end up having their faces in the tiny yeah, little... Yeah, in the flowers. Um, Audrey flowers. Yes. Oh, yes. And you, know you physically see their faces in yep. them. So that's oh, why that's it's so in the cool. stage production that the last number, people all come out with their faces in the flowers. See, yeah. that so. would scare the bejesus out of me, being totally honest with you. if you, I mean, I feel like that would drive me insane. Yeah. And that is that is a great horror element, I think, of that. That is um, a very yeah. cool thing to play And I mean, with. it kind of looks wonky now when you watch it, like, on these high-def TVs. But imagine on a big, enormous 12-inch screen. screen. Way back then, it was probably <laughs> horrifying. Yeah. I think we've talked about overall about a lot of strong points with the show. What are some weak points for you? See, I want to know what Errol's weak points are because he loves, he has a deep love for this yeah. show. I like, let's be the director. Yeah. Like I've said yeah, before, what would you... I, we said it at the beginning of this. I think there's some fat to trim. There are some trudgy, slow moments yeah. of this show sometimes oh, that if it's not nuanced correctly by a director yeah. is excess fat that should have been trimmed. That's interesting. 
I wouldn't, my, none of my qualms have to do with timing, but the biggest one that I have actually more than Audrey, I think is questionable for sure because of the connotations of how the story treats her Mm -hmm. of like her autonomy in this is tricky. Do you think it's a product of men writing for women? I do. I do think that. And I also more than I think it is like them writing a demeaning woman character. I think it's them writing a caricature of a demeaned woman. And I think that that makes it really hard to play currently, but not impossible because I, because I don't think it's necessarily, I think it's tragic, but not untrue. Does that make sense? You know? Yeah. But here's the sad part. I think we've all encountered or know Mm -hmm. an Audrey as written in that 60s version, you know? And so it's it's hard to say, oh, that's not right. That's not PC. Yeah, but it's it's current. But it's the truth. So so less than Audrey, though, I, I do have, there is, a significant Shylock syndrome with Mr. Mushnick. Will you explain what that is? Just for me to Sorry, uh, Shylock is uh, in uh, Merchant of Venice. Shylock is the, he is the Jewish character mm-hmm. and he is portrayed very anti-Semitically stereotyping. Um, he's very into money, exclusively into money, I should say, exclusively into uh, shortchanging people. Mr. Mushnick is written inherently, all of his flaws and what makes him a a unlikable villain of the story is anti-semitic i was actually you got into my mind daryl uh that's the second (laughs) bullet point that i have as a weak point i'm like i hate the anti-semitic sort of stereotype that is mr and and truthfully he does what's weird is it it didn't even really pop into my head because every time i've seen it in a community theater version it's always been played by somebody who is very not Jewish. I just listened to the new cast recording with Jonathan Groff and they play him up. He is insane. Like they literally add in the, uh, into won't you be my son? And when I heard it today, I went, holy shit. I had the script in my hand this morning as I was listening. I went, this is, and I like every single line that he does is, it, I mean, it's all through that lens, and I think it was downplayed for so long, but really bringing it out in that, just that, hearing that little tidbit, and mm-hmm. then like, oh shit, his name is Mushnik. Like, oh my God, like this is all inherently awful. Mm-hmm. Because it's okay, I think all of the action, I'm not, I don't have any qualms with how he responds to anything in the show, but the fact that it is Mr. Mushnik doing it mm-hmm. is really souring to me. He is a person who has survived making a floral shop of all things. But, but, but we also have to remember this is the period of time where there are, there's still to this day in like the New Yorks and the Bostons, there are boroughs of specific places where you're going to get a a, a culture mm-hmm. in said borough. Yeah. And you, you just know that. And that's still a thing to this well, day. Well, and it'd and, be different if they were, if he was culturally Jewish and it was a more of an, a thing in the show mm-hmm. but it was it, it's like it's the bad it's like it is the shylock syndrome it's like all yeah. of the bad oh, traits yeah. that you would that you would make fun of in a in a bad comedy set you know and that's yeah. who they write as that character yeah. you don't know what you're saying but i do it's the one gift i can give you and if i'm in the plant then i'm part of the plant so in a way we'll always be Together, you'll wash my tender leaves. 
You'll smell my sweet perfume. You'll ward on me and care for me. You'll see me bud and bloom. Well, how about let's play let's do it differently this time. Favorite song in this show, least favorite song in the show, and shout out song in the show. Ooh, dang. Is that to somebody else or is that to me? I mean, we're all going to do it. it. Uh, we're all going to do it. Yeah, can I go? I, this is so we'll let Errol go last. Let's, get, let's give him Fine. a break. Fine. Steven, Thank why don't you, you go first, babe? What you got? Yeah. So first off, uh, the fourth category, if you want to do it, is the song you'd cut. Ooh, I hate Will You Be My Son. I think it's fluff. Oh. It does not need to be there. That's, that's, <sighs> I agree. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the, it's the amuse-bouche. I mean, I apprehensively agree. I wouldn't cut it, but if I had to cut a song, that would be the one to cut. I mean, the well, two of you were the, on a, they did it in the film. Yeah. The two of you like were on a directorial team at one point, so I can totally see why, <laughs> you know, you guys are similar in your thought. So I will always say, and I, I always act like, this show is so understated and that no one really knows somewhere that's green, but I have such a love for this song that it knows no bounds. It knows no bounds. I love the dual meaning in a lot of it. I love the, the juxtaposition of like, she's only asking for that, but yet it's an almost an unattainable dream to her. So that this song will live in my head as one of the greatest musical theater songs of all time that no one really gives that chance for like they'll be like oh yeah that song but i think this is literally in like a top 10 should always be in that songs in musical theater sure um the shout out song i do agree has to be skid row downtown because of how different it is from everything else in the show (sighs) all right well i think so for me I love kind of like the the moment in a show where you can identify a turning point. I just love that where it's like you've, sure. you've set what things are and then it is, you know, kind of what we were talking about earlier where it's like this could have ended and then we have 45 minutes left. So it's like, what do we do now? Um, so my it w- it's really a toss up for me. But my favorite song in the show, I think, is Supper Time. It's that moment where it's like. Okay, we're seeing it's iconic. it is iconic. It's so good. It's really the the sentence that I hear whenever I hear this song is I don't think you know who you're dealing with, son. Let me show you who you're dealing with right now. And it, it just it sets the tone for the rest of the second act, which is so powerful for me. And it's just I love the noir feel that you get of it and the darkness that's in it. It is in fact the moment that Seymour has to go, "Oh, okay." I guess this is what we're doing now. Do you want to finish good? I, or can I jump in? On? Please jump. No, no, no. This would be my, I'm going to I'll just do it really. Cause this would be my shout out song. It's the only time in the show where Audrey is speaking mm-hmm. that everybody else, except for Seymour can't hear oh. Audrey too. Same <sighs> thing can be said for the trio. There is a very real way that you could play this. No one would go see this version of the show, by the way. But (laughs) you could do this where that plan doesn't move its mouth ever. And it's just the inner, this is just an inner monologue. Sure. This just becomes like an Ibsen play at that point. Seriously, it does. (laughs) But I think it's such a cool number because it is, it is like, it is the height of the, the dramatic inner conflict of the show. 
this is your choice. Mm -hmm. You are going, this is you killing Mr. Mushnick, your dad. Like, (laughs) you are going to murder him. The plant is a gun. The plant is a knife. The plant is a murder weapon that I am wielding right now. Mm -hmm. Which I think speaks so wildly to, again, what kind of mind games is this alien playing? (laughs) Again, he could have gone to a, you know, he could have found Patrick Bateman and gone, hey, you want to <laughs> team up and just merc some motherfuckers? That's the crossover oh, the world needs. It's, it is. <laughs> Errol, I need you to write this show immediately, right now. <laughs> but it wouldn't be as good because not o- it's like not only does this being want to take over the world, but it wants to do it ethically because I think there's another point, which we didn't really talk about Audrey 2 as an entity, which is the opposite of Garfield minus Garfield. Actually, let's let's do this in a side plot. Side plot. Side plot. I love that. Oh my god, I've got to hit it two times. So So. Go, do you wanna you wanna oh jump it? Oh no! Oh, I'm, so, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna kick us off with some do it. Do over it. over ethereal thinking. Yeah. We know at the end of the show, in the stage production, Audrey lives. And Leaves yeah. get snipped and get sent, and now yeah. Audrey will yeah, yeah. be in every house in America. I think Bezos is Audrey too with Alexa. Interesting, interesting. I like the take. We've signed on the dotted line all the user agreements and things that we did not read, but we have allowed into our home. We've sold our soul and all of the things that we know and are. We've sold our information to them, uh-huh. and now these little computer devices and smartphones and Alexas. <laughs> are literally infiltrating our entire lives. Frank and Oz would absolutely agree with it. you right now. So I think Little Shop of Horrors is just Amazon production facility, the musical. I, okay, brilliant. Hey, I literally have never thought about it that way. That's, Stephen, my hat is tipped all the way to you. you. I love that. I love that. <laughs> yeah, so in next iteration of Little Shop of Horrors, can it just be a Amazon store and they just sell? Alexas. Yeah. Alexas. Brilliant. Cool. Okay. So and it'll talk to you. So literally now that just busted my brain. I love that so much. This is what I'm talking about. Oh, this is what I'm talking about. This is why this show is so good. Anyway. Anyway. He was literally the perfect person to have on for this particular episode. Oh, like so good. literally the best human being. I have a an actual production notebook of this for the day I get to actually direct it. I would have a totally different process with directing whoever the puppeteer and the the person playing Audrey, mm-hmm. the voice, they could not be privy to any of the conversations I'm because there's a whole other show that's happening with this directing concept. My first thing would go, okay, here's where I'm directing this show from to to these two actors, actresses, whoever. I go, all right, we're gonna picture this show that Audrey Two is the hero. They're looking down on this little planet, and they are seeing greed and corruption inherent in the seed of man. In the dominant species of this planet, they see this thing. The The plant could have chosen anybody, but it chooses Seymour, and it tugs at Seymour the whole time. I don't think this alien, this mean green mother from outer space, just wants to take over the planet because it's evil. I don't think that's it. There's so many easier ways it could have done that. It is important to the plant that it shows the world that it's right, that it is correct about its oh. assumptions on the planet because it takes a nobody who has not heard a fly takes that person and makes them into a person who has killed whether or not like up to four people depending Mm -hmm. on how you look at this the whole thesis of the plant is 
I am consuming your blood and your flesh, but I am not eating you alive. Mm -hmm. You are eating each other alive. This is what you do to each other. You need me here. They don't come just to mess with the world. They come because they think they need to lead us. They mm -hmm. they look at us and we are flawed. Mm -hmm. We are correctable. Every ounce of this story, if you if you look at the lens of Audrey 2 is the protagonist mm -hmm. and advocate from their point of view, that that is every reason everything happens the way it does. You know, we want to feed, we want to be part of the ecosystem. You mm -hmm. are not you are not the alphas here and you pride yourselves on destruction of each other. I'll eat you. You're my fuel, but I'm better than you. And I think that's why it's so like, that's the actual whore, the, the, the almost HP Lovecraft side of this. It is a cosmic aberration that says, I am, I, you don't understand what you're doing to this planet and to yourselves. Mm -hmm. And I am better than you. <laughs> and I took the weakest of you. Mm -hmm. I took the one who everyone else would have forgotten about and also either shit on or assumed to be Mr. Nice Guy. Mm -hmm. And I made him a monster. And it took next to no effort from me. It took wishful thinking. And that's all that plant ever does is just apply a dream which could then even be a deeper, like you could apply that as a general thought. Wishful thinking can turn people into monsters. Like it's the, like, what won't you do for your dream? Exactly. exactly. Tell me how and I will, I'll get out of here. And if that can happen to someone like Seymour, it can happen yeah. to any of us. Literally anybody. I can get, I started with the hardest one to get and it wasn't that hard for me. I'm dead. I don't. I'm dead. <laughs> anyway, that was a very long side Sorry. plot. Sorry. Yeah. So I, again, the, I'm just eking out the the Hoover Dam over no, here. No, love just, it. I really quickly. I need your the song you hate. If I had to cut a song, it would be uh, it would be uh, Mushnik and Son. I would keep it for pragmatic reasons, not for sure quality of show. My favorite song, man. It's hard not to say that it's uh, now. Do it now. Slash. It's the gas. It's not quality of song. It's that it's so funny to me. The it's dentist so is good. an iconic character to begin with. It so is, like, and, and that you, you love the song. It's just so good, and it's so I listen to it, and it cracks me up even when I'm not watching. It's just so funny. So I think it, that's my favorite song. I love that we all have different love songs. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, and and so the last one is my least favorite song. It's integral to the story, and I just don't want it. I don't know if it's because every I've heard it done so many times, but suddenly Seymour gets to me. And it and it gets it, to me also in the way of where it's overdone. It, it's the defying gravity. You hear it so much, it, you're like, okay. But it's also fine. because of what I said earlier with where it lies in the context of the show and how weirdly defeated these two people are, and yet it's like the big uplifting number of the show is really hard for me to reconcile as somebody who loves this show, who loves the song on its own, but I've heard it way too many times. There's this like weird purple haze glittery look at that song of how great it is of the show stopping number. And I go like, yeah, but it's of all of them. I feel like it's the most flawed for where it is, what it's doing and who it's trying to be. I will interject really quick and say my shout out song is somewhere that's green. And then I would also cut, cut about being my son. That's that. I, yep. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about one hungry plant here. We're talking about world conquest. And I want to thank you. You're a monster and so am I. Feed me! You ain't the only thing I ever loved. Too bad. Take that!
never hear. Rat poison. Eat that. Eat it, eat it, eat it. There. Give up, small fry. Maybe it's time. It's that time. That time? We get to sit down round a lovely table and <gasps> put this thing on some legs. Test it out. It's time for questions for a table read. It's my favorite part. You'll see. They almost all knows how to read. That had, that had a very, like, you've activated my trap card en- energy. Like, I didn't know what was about to happen, but... It was so <laughs> ominous from sitting here. I'm like, what? What is, is going happening? On? Well, as we know, this is one of my favorite parts. You'll see. We we take our show through our series of Bechdel tests. Does Little Shop of Horrors pass the following tests? Women. I'm. Uh, I, he and I always get into this conversation. So, do, does this show represent women well? And can you cast women? The effectively, like, is it all um, you know? That's hot. I've, are there are the roles good for women? Does it represent them well? Mm-hmm. Is it able to be cast with women? Does it represent them well? Is tough. We've already touched yeah. on a bunch of this. Is it good roles for women? I think Audrey Audrey is one of the best roles you you could oh. get to play. I think she's nuanced. I think there's so many cool things you can do with her. But is she a good part for women? I she's not a. I would. I think you can find strength in her, absolutely. But her yeah. circumstances do not do her any favors, as far as we're talking about feminism and and totally. that role. From an actor's perspective, I think it's probably a good role to keep. Like if you ever got cast in it, it's a great one to show on your resume, just strictly for um, the range that yeah. you have. You have the chops to yeah. play Audrey. Yeah, absolutely. That would resound on a resume. Yeah. yeah, and and it's a and it's a hard role to play well, but a, an interesting. I think it's dynamic. She's super dynamic. I think if She's you don't the one play with a good arc, yeah, and if you don't, I think I've seen a lot of Audrey's fall flat because they don't play the her ending with a, from a position of strength. They play her wilted and and you know consumed as opposed to like it's the first time that she makes a s- affirmative action when she martyrs herself. Mm-hmm. Like, I think there's such a you can play that with some real strength and and yeah. it's successful. And and let's talk about Ellen Green just again. She was characteristic. She was tropey. Yeah. She was every cliche you could ever do. And there was still such earnestness. You in still loved every her. Line. Yeah. She gave. And that's what the test of time was with that. In a cast of what, 10 ish? Mm-hmm. There's what, four, four. five? Four. The other three are core. They are the a chorus. Entire like, there's chorus. only one actual lead girl. Yeah. And then you have these three omniscient sub characters oh. in a way, but they got some good numbers, but I wouldn't say it's like, so it. granted they're, every time I smile, every time I see them on stage, how is it for females is a different question because Audrey too is canonically female. Mm-hmm. That's a female plant. Mm-hmm. And even though it's always voiced by a, you know, soulful baritone you technically have audrey 2 and audrey 2 plays this on the same plane of existence as with supper time with mm-hmm. the, with our three greek choruses if we're talking about powerful women though audrey 2 is quite she is the most powerful female on <laughs> one stage. could say she's it <laughs> she is yeah. the thing uh race how is race represented in this show well, speaking obliquely, yes, I mean the obliquely. fact the fact that the <laughs> casting note is 
that if when you are casting for the three sisters, that they are typically, quote, you know, African-American or people of color. Like the fact that you have to have that casting note in the beginning is kind of interesting. Um, but again, we are like we've mentioned, we are in a very specific period of time where, you know, we would you would have the people, unfortunately, the quote undesirables be people of color. Yeah. And then everybody else, the quote affluent people are all white people, right? Like right. that is kind of a product of its generation. So like, is it accurate? Probably. Is it done well? This is a, a thing that I always struggle with of like, I think it's really good that they give those casting notes via the, the like, we need more opportunity for people of color in general to have like to have a stake in like don't touch these roles these are ours mm -hmm. as far as like the jobs getting jobs it's entirely important i think it's really hard when you say these characters are only relatable to people of color mm -hmm. necessarily like when you're saying when you're giving those casting notes i always yeah. have trouble with that because i don't think that that's necessarily i think the the circumstances around those characters are entirely universal. Uh, so the experience itself is universal from where they're I think coming it should be from, able to yes. go any which way, you know, which is me, of course, speaking as a white cis male is really like, it's not really, really my place canceled. to say <laughs> cancel. But I think any race applied to a character says something entirely different about that character. Yeah, you know? we say that all the time when we're when we're casting in our show notes episode. We always cast this show. Oh, interesting. When mm -hmm. with other people, and so uh, sometimes we say, "Oh, that would be really interesting because it would also add another layer yeah. to the message this character is implying." Mm -hmm. So I think they do do that well, and it speaks another story when you have our street urchins as beautiful black women who are powerhouses yeah. and know yeah. everything. It speaks to a different level. I agree. To do it with three prissy white girls in the same way is that is it, that. Totally Telling a different, different story. And then, of course, we always have to talk about representation. Now, in our call sheet, uh, it pretty much says you're a boy or you're a girl. Yeah, that's that was weird. I can't believe that was on MTI's website right now. Mm -hmm. That's so weird to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I think Audrey as transgender is really interesting and applicable. Um, totally. When you think, I mean, total side tangent here. But if you think about somewhere that's green in the context of, of transgender idealism and like where that conversation is nowadays, that's an important f song. What is more relatable to their movement right now than they are seeking somewhere that's green? Like they are not asking for the world. They are asking for normal, normal same f rights that everyone else has. Is Seriously. that so much to ask? I think it's yeah. such, I would, uh, that's the first one on my list of like, that's an interesting conversation. Man, that's cool. That's just cool. So yeah, I think this absolutely is open. So MTI, calling you out. Seriously. MTI, let's go. Yeah, I don't know if that's Disney getting a hold of you or what. However, maybe not calling them out in that the, the this is always the nuance too. You yourself get to feel how you feel. However, right. how you present that day, yeah. are you presenting male? Are you presenting female? That, and maybe that wording should be how it's yeah, used. I think then I yeah. think there's an energy to those Played characters more this way. Yeah. yeah. The gender of it, I think is non applicable to any, really yeah. almost any of those characters, except for the dentist again, for the same reasons, not for, yeah, it's just, that is such He's a, he's gotta be that shitty white guy. You it, know? It, he is a <laughs> shitty, 
white guy. That's all. Uh, and that, that, we're gonna that should the, be the on MTI. It should go Orange Gravetto, DDS, a shitty, shitty white, white guy. guy. Dead. The Hashtag end. Hashtag dead. Hashtag dead. So I always love those three questions because it creates fun new discussions regardless. But yeah. more fun discussion. Does this story hold out without the music? Say it. I, I think. Th I think. This is a full-on episode out of the Twilight Zone without the music, and it would be just as compelling. Absolutely, I think I think the music does wonders for it. I think it makes it incredibly palatable and watchable and fun. But I don't think it. Yeah, I would watch. I'd watch this without it any day. I think this is a musical for non-musical theater lovers. Like Agreed. it doesn't matter. Gateway uh, musical again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Hashtag>. <laughs> I love that. It is. Uh, I mean, for me, I know it was like. I didn't need because it it does such a good job of being quintessentially a musical without playing any of the musical theater ideals really like uh, as far yeah. as like the story itself you know. Um, for Mary today, I would absolutely watch this without the music. For Mary, when I was first introduced to this, I absolutely would not have. Oh, interesting. The yeah, music is what tied me in and pulled me into the story oh. and made me want to watch it. And now being someone who has done theater and, and done all these things like I, and is a horror lover now uh, and who can watch absurdist things and only in recent history has accepted that those things are like, yeah. you know, good for me. I would absolutely do that now. Mary, like at 11 years old who watched this? Absolutely not. Could this change era, time, or decade and still have the same impact? What do you, you mean like change? So if the, we... Like we set the it, show now. Or in the, in the 1980s. 60s, it's in 2010. It's in 2010. Yeah, it's in 1800s. Yeah. It's a, yeah. I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. There are specific shout outs like in songs like She Talks About Levitt Town, which is a very... Yeah. 40s, 50s-esque thing. There are things that are universal about this that could be fluid into different, you know, uh, era, time, decade. But I think that where it is set right now because of, you know, the reference we keep ma making for the Twilight Zone, the fact that the Twilight Zone was, was kind of, correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not really good about, you know, cinema history, but like in this era of time, this was a popular show or it was like a popular concept or like yeah. sci-fi was like something that, that people were gravitating towards yeah. because it was so different, I think lends to the strength of this particular show. And it makes sense that it is told through this lens because of where it is being like birthed, I suppose. We haven't reached a time where this isn't applicable. You don't do these, you do these shows because they are, they are referential of the world that they exist in. In the context, like I think about like Audrey two or Audrey one in the context of the play makes a lot of sense. The second you take Audrey one and you place her in 2023, there's a whole different connotation to who she is. It changes her lack of ability to defend herself. That would be my thing is like, I wouldn't take it out of its, out of its time frame because of these characters exist in this bubble that makes sense in there. Um, yeah. I I would say I think I like the idea of moving this. Do I think there's issues with doing so? Yes. Would I go see a version of this? Absolutely. If it were moved? Oh, I'd be first in line. Me too. Me too. 
Ooh, amateur professional, scale of one to ten, where do we put this? One being any amateur theater, a high school can put this on, no problem. Two, professional, hardest thing on the planet, ten. Three. Whoa, that was so fast. Wow, okay. That was fast. I, I think that's what makes it great. I think it is an easy, I think it's a pretty easy show to get into. This is a four for me. Sure. Yeah, I'd say I'd say probably four. I mean, maybe four and a half for the you know the the stuff you'd have to go through with like the puppetry of Audrey if you've never done it if you've never done accessibility. Part of the success, show. Accessibility is harder because it costs a lot to do, and I know because I've tried to put it together like five or six times in my career now, and every time I go, I need eight grand to make a puppet. And <laughs> at least and that's like before you pay for royalties before you pay for musicians actors anything else that's about 10 years of some high school theaters budget yes, yes. <laughs> which that's hard and i've seen it with not great puppets and it's okay but man oh, oh either yeah. that or do it do it garfield minus garfield no puppets <laughs> just, not sans puppets just, just just plants, just just an actual uh, plant, plant that somebody yeah. shaped, like a monstera plant that I, has no I, business eating it, people. I'm, so, I'm this is a public declaration. Just pull uh, if, a who, who, what is it? Who killed baby Jane? Yes. No. What is it? If, if somebody, just, it's the, what, the reacting. Yeah. Yes. If somebody out there has the guts to do little shop without the plant. Get on the chats. I don't know if you have a chat, but get on <laughs> hey, it. Hey, you can. This is a great time. You can follow us on Instagram uh, from the top underscore podcast, or you can email us podcast from the top at gmail.com. Producer, I will be there in a heartbeat to help you get this thing on the <laughs> ground because I think it's so <laughs> courageous because nobody's going to go see your show, but you everybody still do it. should. No one will watch it. No one will want to see this show minus a plant except for me. And even if it's me putting you it together, front I will be night. there every night. <laughs> I will do it for you. Well, 50 years from now, will it still be being staged? Yes. I hope so, man. Yes. I hope so. I, I think this is one of those that will stand the test of time. Well, I think it is. And I also think in the state, like we've definitely moved it to this place of nostalgia. You're like, it's going to exist in its bubble forever. Yeah. What I'm afraid of, my fear for this show is that people are going to forget that it has something to say. And I've already seen this be true of like, I know when my college did it, I can tell that they, none of these conversations that we had about it were present. They just wanted to do little shop and, and sing the songs and hit the marks that, that everybody hits. I think there's so much, to be discovered and rediscovered continuously about this show. I think that's what I'm afraid disappears in 50 years is the context and the conversations that can still come from it. Cause this could easily turn into an Oklahoma for people of like, ah, this is just on our season. Cause everybody it does it. Yep. And Oh look, yeah. we built a a really cool big plant. You know, it's a grease. It gets butts and seats. Yep. It just, yeah. yeah. I think this show will be relevant as long as it needs to be relevant and we will glean from it things oh, yeah. until then. If this becomes a foreign concept to people, if the things become unrelatable, we have reached the pinnacle of society. Right? Like well, that's the whole thing. I think what, what Audrey was trying to do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think we've hit a point like with a lot of the shows that we talk about, we've hit a point. I mean, you mentioned the nostalgia part of it, but there will always be people who want to see a sci-fi story and they want to see, you know, especially like on a campy level, people will always flock to this because it is campy and because, you know, we give it a pass immediately because, you know, it's a talking Venus flytrap that eats people. Like yeah. that's you know, it, it, there is always some sort of level of um, comedy 
ready that like people will want to go see it. And then there will be the people in the next generation that like we are telling them you need to see this because it was, you know, it was important in our generation. Like we want you to watch it. And there will, I think there will always be somebody who will continue to facilitate the love for it. And then other people will find the love for it. But I do agree, you know, with Errol and the idea that like, if it loses its ability to tell a relevant story of like, you know, what happens when you, you marry a wishful thinking to your means of getting what you want. Like when you marry those two things, like what happens and it's the, it's the, wouldn't this be cool if, or the what if of it all, Mm -hmm. if you lose that, then yeah, it just becomes a campy show with a giant puppet. We're, we are redeveloping a love for like the amount of conversations you see online now for like carnival of souls, like all of these fifties and sixties, ethereal mind bending like kind of low budget campy things because these guys had stuff to say and they had to say it at a time when like there was McCarthyism they had to be really elusive about how they treated material and like it's really cool and I think there's a you know when we're talking about like the musical treatment there's a lot of things you could mine in the same way that was so successfully done with this I think that brings us to the final and last question. I know it's an easy answer for me. Oh, it's my favorite question. Would we show this stage version to aliens? Yes. I think this is like alien porn. It is. Oh, yeah. I If they are aliens, I hope they've already seen it. Because you know what it says to them? It says, we know. We already know. We, we know what we know. you see. We know we what's good. It. Like, it's like, oh, that's first part of our by a diabolical plan of takeover. Like, yes, yes. I understand. And, but also, like, we know who we are. Like, Aliens are you showing show up. We know what you're going to do. We know our flaws. <laughs> we know our heel. Thank you very much. The aliens are showing it in their alien schools to their children Step to teach. One, he's off to Harvard Law, so I get in there too. <laughs> <laughs>
on Little Shop of Horror. Zah. Horrors. Zah. Multiple horrors. I, I always talk about, and I think you guys have heard this spiel from me before, especially in shows, like theater, I always talk about theater magic. And I'm, and I always have to describe it of like, it's not, if you're looking at a magic trick, it's not when the bunny disappears. Like that's not what theater magic is. Theater magic is when you tell somebody that you're going to disappear a rabbit and they go, okay, I'm ready to see that. That's the moment of theater magic. When the collective belief in the thing and saying, this is going to be true. And before it happens, everybody buys in and they says, absolutely, let's see it. And whatever way you tell them to do that, if you literally just hold the the blanket up in front of the bunny and somebody takes it away and you put it down, you say, look at what happens. The magic already happened. It has nothing to do with the rabbit being there or not. When I think of this show and I think of theater magic, I think it is an incredibly palpable statement to say somebody had the idea to say a killer plant from outer space is going to eat people and it's going to say something about the human condition. The amount of theater magic that has to exist that this show has been running consecutively through thousands of playhouses across the country and the world, like this is such a generator of theater magic because none of this should be even palatable to an audience. And yet this is one of, you know, this is one of the most recognizable musical theater properties in the world. I think it says so much to our inner child as audiences that we're willing to pay a ticket price to go see this every time. I think it says so much to why theater is is indelible and why it's going to continue forever is because if if you're going to buy this, you're going to buy, like we can tell you any story. I think the only rule is have some sincerity, have some accountability to your story and to your characters and people are going to join you. And if this show doesn't prove that beyond the shadow of a doubt, then we're, then like, there nothing will. So are you going to follow that or am I going to follow that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can try. The, 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 that was so beautiful. And I can only agree with literally every point. Mm-hmm. The, I just can only speak from my point and just say this show has always felt like it's been a part of my life. And I think that's because it has just become part of the zeitgeist of us as humans. It's pulled its own Audrey too and wormed its weeds into all of our musical theater souls. And for that, I appreciate it. And I like the I specifically tonight I loved having to research the show and find its roots haha uh-huh. and get to explore where this kite came from that is always the blessing for me is now I can look at the show with even more appreciation I mean I of course yeah it was so eloquently put and I appreciate that the three perspectives in this room are so different because we can look at it through, you know, an actor lens. Cause all of us have been that Steven can look at it through a choreographer perspective. And then we have Errol's perspective as a director. I think that this show opens up a lot of conversation and much like we've talked about on a lot of these shows, I appreciate the conversation that comes from the, something that could be so mundane, right? A show is a show and people can look at a show from a surface level and go, wow, that was fun. It was pretty. They sang beautifully. The costumes were fun. The plant is interesting. Like you've got all these different things that people could just on a surface level go, that was a cool thing. 
But then on a deeper level, you start looking at it for things like the human condition, capitalism, what it means to be a woman in the 60s, what it means to be a woman in general, what it means to be an underdog, to make your own decisions, to be accountable for things, especially when they're bad. It is a gateway musical in a lot of ways, not just because it then opens you up to like other musicals, but like it opens up conversation to humans. It is what feeds you and it is at it is so sustainable in and of itself because it does so many things for people. And I think that this show is a really great example of that because you see so many different types of people living their lives and then how those lives intersect and the consequences of people's actions, I think is a really great testament to them. And this conversation has been literally so flipping cool that I'm so, I, and Errol gets to see the end of this, this now. So the way that we end these shows is Steven will give me the clue for the next musical that we're going to talk about. Cause I don't know the lineup beforehand. So babe, my love, please give me the clue for what we're going to do next time. And we'll see if Errol gets it before I do. Okay, well, Errol, if you get it mouth shut. Okay. <laughs> Our clue for next show we're covering on our FTT extravaganza season about death our main protagonist pretty much has a relationship with an inanimate object <laughs> damn it <laughs> a relationship a relationship like a relationship a relationship one true love with an inanimate object oh boy he I can see the wheels turning He's I just wish there was a her the musical right now. Because then it would just be that. <laughs> anyway. Well, okay. Well, while I ruminate on that, I'm going to take a moment and say, Errol, thank you so much for this conversation tonight. This was... I mean, I mean, I would I'm going to speak for Steven as well, because I'm sure he will say a thing. But we are so grateful and happy and humble that you were able to come over tonight and just share some beautiful thoughts and perspectives and, and just, I mean, at least for me, give me some things that I never would have thought about about this show. And it was just it was so beautiful to watch you light up about it, because like that's my favorite part about talking about musicals in general, but with people who are theater aficionados is watching you light up about it. And it was so fun. Oh, thank you for having me. It was so great to be able to. I mean, what a great outlet. Yeah. And I mean, truly, you know, Steve, Steven's the one that is the brainchild behind this whole thing. So thank you, Stephen, for. Yeah. giving us a great musical to talk about. Well, you know, I love good, deep conversations about anything musical. So if you want to join the conversation, of course, as we stated, please join our Instagram following at from the top underscore podcast on Instagram. And if you had any sightings of pl random plants from outer space on the eclipse that happened last week, don't you remember that we never talk about? Oh, yeah, again, totally. totally. Uh, I would love to hear all about it in long form. So please email us at podcast from the top at gmail.com are there any social handles that people should follow you at errol not yet there's, okay. a, there's a new production company on, on the road that maybe i'll come back someday and tell you <gasps> but oh until, my god course, until then it's a mystery <laughs> uh, my what's what would be my instagram it's errol it's at errol koch at errol koch on instagram. Uh, on instagram if you want to make a <laughs> Uh, plantless little shop. Plantless otherwise, little I will shop. not respond. Yes, otherwise, I no. Notoriously, will not respond. But if your headline in the message is "plantless little shop," I will respond. I'm in. Well, now we know how to get Errol to respond to his DMs on Instagram. There it's it good, is. It's a good time. Well, this has been incredible, and I'm super glad that we were able to do this tonight. So, until next time, this has been 
From, from the, the top. top, a wandering unicorn production. So if you had to feed somebody to Audrey too, who are you feeding? Jeffrey Bezos. Donald Trump. Elon Musk. Take your pick. <laughs> Feed the plant to the plant. Let the meat cake. <laughs>